Okay. Anybody feel like the Thanksgiving break came at like exactly the right time? Raise your hand. Yes. Just a couple of you. Some of you are like, I wish I had more school. And good for you. <laughs> Isabella was like, just straight offense. All right. Well, it is good to be with you guys. Um, we are currently, as I remind you um, every week since we've started in the fall, um, that we are in a series uh, called How to Change. We're learning about uh, Christians who desire to grow in godliness in order to live the way um, that we desire to live more than any other way on earth, and that is for God's uh, glory. So we're learning about something that's both central uh, to the Christian faith and something that all Christians desire to do. And then the section that we're in, the last kind of section in this series, is called Change in Real Life. And the idea is that the setting... Uh, real life, the actual reality we live in, um, is not very comfortable. Uh, we're trying to learn how to change and grow in godliness in a world um, that does not love godliness, does not like holiness, um, because they don't love God. Um, we live outside of God before Christ, but through Christ we come um, into the family of God, and therefore we love God and live in his ways in a world that does not. Um, and that's not a very comfortable setting. Um, But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is uh, so hard that it's just all joyless and all hopelessness and all unhappiness. The Christian life is actually very joyful, um, and we have so much hope. Um, And the Bible is not shy to talk about the things in real life that are difficult and broken because all of them have a place in God's plan specifically for us to change. And we've already dealt with two of those uh, difficult things. Um, The first one we dealt with was temptation. Which is the idea that there are parts of life that are tempting us to sin and we're not fully redeemed yet. We're not in heaven yet. Um, God has saved us and changed our natures, um, but not perfectly yet, which means we still struggle with being drawn into sin. Um, But God in Proverbs chapter 7 specifically has given us a strategy so we could see the signs of temptation and we could move away from them so that we would um, remember um, that sin will not satisfy us. Um, But God will satisfy us. Only he can promise satisfaction. And then last week, we covered the second one of those difficulties, which was spiritual warfare, um, which is the concept that we are in a spiritual war in which God's people are fighting against the forces of uh, Satan, um, who hates God and is trying to call believers into sin, to sin as much as possible and to disrupt God's plan. And there's a solution for that, too. The solution is that through God's resources, which he calls um, the armor of God, um, we can put on God's armor, his resources, um, that he explains in Ephesians chapter 6, that we might stand firm. Um, that God's power would be uh, clear in us, um, so that we would not give in to sin, that we would not give in to Satan, that we would proclaim God even against uh, the devil himself. And today we're covering the third of the difficulties that we face, and I think it's probably another one that is um, so occupying Christians' minds, whether uh, you are young or whether you're old, and that is the idea of uh, suffering. Suffering, kind of like temptation, isn't really um, something that's hard to define. I think if I say suffering, I think all of you guys picture something that's probably uh, right on track. Um, Suffering is anything that's dealing with the pains and the difficulties and the hard things 
in life, often things that affect our joy and our happiness. Sometimes suffering looks like good things that are taken away, things like comfort and pleasure and contentment and health and peace and security and relationships and even joy and hope. But suffering also comes because we are Christians living in a world that hates Christ. And what that happens is that Christians go into a particular kind of life of suffering because we are standing for righteousness in a world that defines righteously differently. And in many ways, it actually defines righteousness as unrighteousness, calling bad things good and good things bad. And so as Christians, we are living in a world that is going against the grain, which means suffering is actually something that is easier to befall Christians because People are not going to like us because of how we live and who we serve. And because of that, it's really, really important to understand what the Bible says about suffering because the Bible is not shy to say that suffering is very much a part of the Christian life. But fortunately for us, there's actually so many places to go in the Bible, so many that it is actually most difficult for me to figure out a text for this sermon But I think the one that we have is really helpful. And so if you have your Bibles, turn it over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you go there, let me tell you um, just one minute on why this book is so important. This book is so important because it's the Apostle Peter talking to a church that is suffering. Um, That church, he defines those people as exiles, which means people who aren't at home. And the reason they're not at home is because particularly they are suffering. They live in the Roman Empire under a Roman emperor um, who really hates Christians. Um, This is a period in time in which Christians are suffering persecution, torture, um, and even dying and being killed by the government. And in moments like that, it can be very easy for Christians to start asking questions to God. Questions that we might ask too, questions like, if God allows suffering, does he actually care for me? Or maybe questions like, why would a good God allow something like this to happen? And these are big questions that almost every Christian at some point in their life have to struggle with. Not just because of suffering outside of themselves, but suffering that they deal with as well. And because of that, they really needed to hear what God says about suffering. They didn't just need to hear the Apostle Peter's opinions on suffering. They needed to see how this worked in the plan of God. And so when Peter opens the book of 1 Peter, he gets right to the point and starts mentioning in three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, all of the blessings that are found for believers who are in Christ. He says in verse 3 that believers are born again to a living hope. Um, Our hope is tied up with the one whom we serve, which is Christ. And though Christ died three days later, he rose again, which means our hope is alive and therefore our hope can never die because it's tied to Christ who will never die. And then he goes on to say that believers have an inheritance. We are walking into a reward that's been given to us and it again is linked with Christ. And he defines that inheritance as imperishable and undefiled and unfading, which means no matter what happens in the Christian life, um, your inheritance is not going anywhere. You are guaranteed through believing in Christ to walk into eternity in fellowship with Christ. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, no more brokenness. And that inheritance isn't going anywhere. And then the third thing he says is that we have a salvation that is being guarded 
by a faith from God's power. Which means if God has you saved, you're not going anywhere. If you believe in Christ, that won't change. Because you're not holding on to your own faith, but rather it is God holding on to you by giving you a faith that is held by his power. Now that's an amazing way to begin an epistle. And it seems like those are so good, but at the same time, what about suffering? And Peter, after saying those benefits, he doesn't ignore suffering. In fact, the very next thing he walks into is to explain suffering as a part of God's plan. And that's the verses we're going to be dealing with today, which is verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1. This is what Peter says. He says, in this you rejoice. This being the plan of God that he explained in verses 3, 4, and 5. You rejoice when we hear about God's plan and his blessings for Christians. But he continues saying, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is God's word to Christians who are persecuted and suffering. And his point is this. We can rejoice even in suffering. And the reason is because suffering is a necessary and essential path to Christ and Christ-likeness. If you want to know Christ and you want to be like Christ, suffering isn't just an accidental thing you have to deal with. Suffering is actually essential to being close to Christ and being like Christ. Now, I think in those verses, he immediately starts to tell us why suffering is important to God's plan to change you. But before he does that, I think he also starts putting off all these light bulbs in the head of Christians which is that there's actually a lot of things that we think about suffering that are not true. You might even call them myths that we believe in suffering. And I think in verses 6 and 7, before we even know what suffering, why suffering is important, we know three reasons that are untrue about suffering, three myths about suffering. And I want to explain them to you very quickly. I think the first myth that he debunks right away is that suffering is pointless. I think a lot of people think suffering is pointless, and the reality is suffering is not pointless. We think suffering comes into our lives and it is random, unfair, or it's an unfortunate mistake. We think that suffering should not have happened. We think that suffering can only harm us and it can never help us. It can only do bad, it can never do good. But God's response is actually to say, I'm sovereign which means I'm in control of everything and every little moment of your life, even suffering, is doing something good for you. Romans 8.28, a passage that so many of us know so well, all things work together for good according to God's purpose towards those who love him. If you believe in Christ, you love him. And if you love him, everything happening in your life, including suffering, is doing something good for you. Now, listen very closely when I tell you this. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to interpret why any suffering in your life is happening. It's, I think a lot of people just think that when suffering happens, they can figure out why exactly it's happening to me. Oh, God wants to show me this or he wants to uh, do this in my life. And the reality is that God doesn't tell you or give you the tools to specifically know all of the individual episodes of suffering in your life and why they happened. But what he does tell you 
is that all of your suffering is doing one thing guaranteed, which is that is making you holy. All of your suffering has one ultimate end guaranteed, which is it is making you holy. Here's the second myth about suffering is that we think suffering is abnormal. The Bible tells us that suffering is not abnormal. Sometimes we can think that normal life is supposed to be comfortable and happy. And that's a lot of the ways that the world believes should work. But the reality is for the Christian, they are not only supposed to know that suffering is necessary, as Peter says, but if God has put it in your life, it is necessary and inevitable. Every single person here will one day suffer. And Peter actually says later this very clearly in 1 Peter 4.12. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Our natural reaction to suffering can be, why God, why would you do this? And actually the question should be, I'm surprised God that this did not happen sooner. I think we'll explain that and understand that a little bit more as we continue with our time. But let me also tell you the third myth about suffering is that we sometimes think suffering is punishment. I think we think that when we receive suffering, our gut response is to think of the last time we sinned and ask the question, maybe this happened because God is angry with me. But the reality is that God's relationship with all believers who are saved, any believer who believes in Christ is not that of a judge who's come to punish, but as a father who's come to care for his children. And that means that when suffering happens in our life, it's not punishment. The Bible says it could be discipline, which is dealing with correction. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, when he says, God disciplines us for our good. And he explained before that, that the reason discipline happens is because he is a father. A father wants joy for their child, but there might be disciplinary action against them if the child decides to run into traffic or break a rule over and over again. And sometimes suffering can act as that kind of sovereign discipline for our correction and for our care. The author of Hebrews continues, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering can be disciplinary in the sense that it trains us, it teaches us, which means that suffering can actually do something beneficial for us. So if all of those three things are myths about suffering, the question we need to ask is what is important about suffering? Unfortunately, that's exactly what Peter is trying to talk about. And really everything he's talking about can kind of fit under two main ideas. This is the first thing. The first reason that suffering is necessary for change is because suffering grounds us in faith. Suffering grounds us in faith. One of the most common questions that any Christian asks is, is my faith real? Do I actually believe in Christ? Do I actually believe in God and his plan for my life? And I have definitely had that question as well. And Peter tells the people in Rome, in 1 Peter, that suffering has a part to help us answer that question. Because what suffering does is it reveals to us and clarifies for us what we believe in and how strong that belief actually is. 
Peter gets at this idea in verse 7 when he begins by saying, You have suffered various trials to prove the tested genuineness of your faith. The key word is genuineness. The idea that Peter is getting at is helping us understand if we have an authentic faith, if faith is actually real. And when suffering comes into our life, it actually helps us authenticate whether we have faith and what that faith looks like. One person who understood this really well is someone you probably know, uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had a difficult life in lots of different ways, namely that he was um, part of the war. Um, But one of the hardest things that ever happened to C.S. Lewis wasn't actually just surviving the war. It was surviving after his wife died. Um, He was only married to his wife for just a couple of years. And when she died, it created something in his heart um, that started to break all sorts of conceptions he had of God. He started to ask the questions of, God, why is it fair that I've had only the brief taste of marriage so much less than everyone else? And for him, in certain uh, ways that he described in a book that was eventually written that he wrote called A Grief Observed, is that as he was looking at his own grief, he started to learn some things about what he actually believed. One of the things he says in that book is, if I were a sane man, would a personal tragedy really make such a difference as this? And the answer is no. It wouldn't for a man whose faith had been real and whose concern for other people's stories had been real concern. If I had really cared as I thought I did about the sorrows of the world, then I would not have been so overwhelmed When my own sorrow came. Before he really suffered, C.S. Lewis had a very easy time believing that God was sovereign in suffering. But as soon as that suffering came to his own household, when it came to his own heart, he started realizing how different it is to personally suffer and the kinds of questions that that asks. Another thing that he realized about suffering personally was that God didn't have to do any of this to reveal his faith to God. This is what he says. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality, because he knew it already. It was I who didn't know. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards, and his only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. What C.S. Lewis realized is that God allowed suffering in his life so that C.S. Lewis himself could have his faith taken out of his heart, put in front of him, so that he could see what it looked like. And that's ultimately what Peter is trying to get at in 1 Peter 1 when he says, the genuineness of our faith must be tested. The idea of our faith is that it is a gift from God. Faith is valuable. In fact, faith is the most valuable thing you have because it connects you to the God who is of all value and of all glory. And the problem of our lives is that we tend not to value it the way the Bible does. We think it's just a bunch of information that we believe, but faith, according to 1 Peter, is more precious than gold. It is more precious than gold. The highest, most valuable currency that anyone could think of in the Roman Empire. Even the smallest, weakest, most broken up faith connects you with a God who is perfect and infinite and loves and cares for us. And one of the ways that God not only reveals the value of faith to us, but also 
strengthens our faith is that he puts us through trials, or as he says, tested by fire. Now, that doesn't mean in the same sense that we think of testing, as if God puts us in suffering and lets us go and says, well, let's see if you actually believe. Let's see how this works. This is my real life examination to prove you're a legit Christian. It's not exactly what he's getting at. Because this kind of testing is much different and it's much more personal and it's much more caring and it's much more loving. And I think you'll understand that idea if you understand the metaphor that Peter is getting at. The metaphor is of how gold is purified or the word is refined. You know, gold is found in mines and it's not the same shape as the bars that were sold or the different kinds of arrangements that were sold. It had to be put in a furnace. Uh, One of my old pastors, his name was Tom Patton. He described the process this way. He says, gold is put into a fire so that it becomes melted. And when it's melted, impurities in the gold rise to the surface. And those impurities are then scraped away more and more. So when the gold is taken out of the furnace, it is smooth and shiny. It is so shiny that the goldsmith can then see more and more of his face in the gold. Peter is saying that is a good analogy for suffering as part of God's plan, which is that when believers are put into the fire, their impurities rise to the surface. When believers suffer, they see where they've truly put their faith, what they actually believe in. And when they see the responses, they can actually see what their faith is in. For example, if we suffer and we sin and a response is anger or that we long for our lost comfort, or we become impatient, or we show how much we love ourselves. We start to see what we actually believed. We start to think that we have a different version of justice than God does, that we had a better plan for the world than God does. And what's happening? Our impurities are rising to the surface. But again, that's not just so our impurities are seen to us so God can just get mad at us and start scolding us. God puts us in that position so that when our impurities rise to the surface, God then scrapes them away. And how suffering then becomes a process of refinement and sanctification and purification. The reality is that every single person in this world, believer and unbeliever, is going to suffer. But only Christians are refined in suffering. They grow in such a way that they can know and trust God more and that their hope in God is more and more refocused. And it's not only that, but it's that even in the weakest, most fragile faith, God shows us how we can not just survive through suffering, but we can thrive after having suffered. It's part of God's process to strengthen and confirm his people. And when that process is finished, Just in the same way when a bar of gold comes out of the furnace and the goldsmith can see his face in it. So after we've suffered, we've been refined in such a way that Christ is more seen upon us. That people would see us and they would see more and more of Christ. The reality is that I don't think that kind of process is crazy to any of you guys. And that's because part of this message isn't actually terribly different than the culture. 
One thing that I've noticed in the last decade for sure is that more and more of the culture and just secular entertainment is starting to recognize and talk about how suffering is actually valid. People for centuries have been working out. And part of that is tearing your muscles, which is painful and uncomfortable, in order to become stronger. And people do crazy things even though they suffer. Thousands of people every single year climb Mount Everest even though hundreds of people have died. And yet they do it for what reason? Simply to prove something to themselves. Many different people who are in different sports, like Alex Honnell, who climbed a mountain with no ropes for three hours, will suffer absolutely incredible things for what? To prove something to themselves. I've listened to all sorts of uh, non-Christian podcasters and self-help people who will say, the only way to find out about yourself is to struggle. This isn't that different from the culture. But the reality is the reason why they say suffering is important is completely different from Christianity. Which is that suffering isn't about finding out about ourselves or being more dependent on ourselves or trusting ourselves more. It's about growing more dependent on God. Because when your faith is strengthened, it's strengthening your trust and your dependence and your hope, not on yourself, but on God. I listened to an interview this week from a famous uh, actor. His name is Ben Affleck. He played Batman. Very, very famous actor. He was talking about having been divorced and suffering from an alcohol addiction for a a long time. And the interviewer asked him, why is it, uh, what was the biggest thing to help you break this alcohol addiction? And this is what he said. The cure for addiction is suffering. If you suffer long enough, then something inside you says, I'm done. And I'm very lucky because I hit that point before I lost many of the things that were most important to me. What is the most important thing for you? Because when you suffer, you'll find out what it is. Even Ben Affleck knows that. But the reality is that suffering from a Christian perspective is frightening and scary and intimidating But it can also be something that when we understand its necessity, how important it is, we would still be able to trust God in it and know how valuable it is to grow. Paul David Tripp, a pastor, he says this, God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Let me say that again. God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And the Bible calls that grace. But it's not the grace of relief. It's the grace of refinement. Because that's the kind of grace that we need. What is most important to you? If you are angry at God in suffering... That is understandable. If you are frightened of suffering, absolutely join the club. But at the same time, ask yourself this question first. Is what I want most in this world to be more holy? Do I long for holiness more than anything else? A kind of holiness that would make me look more like Christ. Well, the reality is that suffering will point you to your faith which will point you to Christ. 
That's why faith is the most important thing in the world. And how suffering strengthening our faith is therefore amazing. And that we can actually trust God in suffering because he is pointing us to the most important person in the world. And as Peter continues to explain, it also points us to something else. And that second thing is actually the second reason, the second of the two reasons why suffering is so necessary for change, which is this. Suffering points us to heaven. Suffering points us to heaven. Peter continues in verse 7 by saying, Suffering various trials will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ is simply talking about when Christ returns. It's the end of all things. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is telling the church is that think about your life, not through where you're going in a year or 10 years, but where you're going to be in eternity. Let that final destination define how you live life right now. When you think about that end day, that's going to change a lot of what's important to you, a lot of your motivations, a lot of your decisions, and it will strengthen your joy. Suffering looks different in light of eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 is an amazing verse for that, where Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, what is Paul talking about? Paul is saying that suffering makes us homesick. Suffering tells you where your home is at. Because one day, all of us who believe in Christ are going to live in a place where there will be no more death, tears, mourning, crying, or pain. Those are all specifically mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And suffering starts to clarify where you actually want to be. I remember very, very clearly my first winter that I spent in Nova Scotia, my first year of college. And I can tell you that when it first started snowing, I got kind of excited because I thought it's going to be fun to play in all the snow and walk in it for like a month, but then I'll go home for Christmas in Vancouver. And for those of you who don't know Canadian geography, Nova Scotia and Vancouver are very, very far apart. The reality was I ended up calling my parents and they clarified for me uh, that I actually wasn't coming home for Christmas uh, because we couldn't afford to bring me home. And all of a sudden, the snow that I started looking at became less and less appealing because I started thinking about how wet I was going to be, how tired I was going to be, and most importantly, how lonely I was going to be. That's the most homesick I've ever been in my life. And suffering is like a reminder of the same thing. Suffering is a reminder of what our home is going to be like because of what life is like now that it won't be like one day. When you suffer, it is like blinding you to the reality that you aren't going to be here forever. And so many of the things that we want in this world are not going to be in eternity. So why would we want them now? Everything one day is going to be perfect in heaven. Everything in heaven one day is going to be devoid of so many things on earth. So many things that are going towards our spiritual destruction and detriment and not our spiritual joy. And therefore, we shouldn't mind nearly so much that this temporary affliction is just that. It's 
temporary, and it's also preparing us to live a certain way, more like the way we're going to live in heaven. And if we would actually be motivated for that eternity, it doesn't just make us want to be saved, but it makes us want to live differently, to use the time we have well, to be faithful in suffering well. And that means we need an example. We need an example of someone who is so concerned with eternity and so valued God's glory that no amount of suffering could stop him. And the pattern of that kind of life was Christ. Christ set a perfect example of how believers are called to suffer. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, what could call Christ to be so convinced of the essential nature of suffering that he could actually call us to suffer? And that he would say suffering and belief go together. Well, it can only be a God who not only understands suffering and ordains suffering, but experienced suffering. Because Jesus himself experienced suffering. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it explains that Jesus had to suffer to be the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith can only exist if Christ suffered first. And then Hebrews also explains the kind of attitude that Christ had when he suffered. He explained that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ was the perfect example of understanding suffering is temporary, and it is nothing in comparison to the joy set before him in the future. And the reality is he didn't just suffer for himself. And for his glory, but consequently he suffered that we would experience his glory, that we would be redeemed from this world, and that we would be redeemed to live a life worthy of his namesake. That's why Peter sums up the whole message of 1 Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, where Peter says this, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He says, brothers and sisters, suffering won't make you trust Christ less. It will make you trust him more. And that God has given you the ability with even the tiniest amount of faith that you would not just get through suffering, but that you would do good works while suffering. When you see the example of Christ, it should motivate us to live the same way. That's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, that we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. The way Christ thought about suffering should be the way we think about suffering, that it would contribute to holiness, that it would point us to heaven, that it would make us want to be more like him. Because when suffering focuses on us on heaven, it makes us want to live for heaven, for God's will. And that makes us want to flee sin and live righteously. And that's the obvious question that kind of needs to be asked as a result of thinking about this, which is this, what are you living for? If you think suffering is an unacceptable part of your lifestyle, then you're not thinking about living the Christian lifestyle. Christians don't love suffering. We don't look for it. We don't wait for it. We don't enjoy the suffering itself, but we enjoy what God is producing in us when suffering inevitably comes. 
And so much of suffering involves things being taken away from us. Things in this world that we love, motivations in this world that we want to keep pursuing. And so when suffering comes and we respond in a certain sinful way, we should ask ourselves the question, are we actually living for God or are we living for the things God gives us? Do we love this world? Are we committed to this world? Or do we want God to allow his process of suffering to purify our commitment, to clarify for us what is actually worth living for? One pastor put it this way, I think, helpfully. He says, sometimes God withdraws his hand. And what he means is not that God stops being sovereign, but that God allows suffering to happen in our lives. And he says, when that happens, we become unusually useful to the king. Suffering makes us useful and dangerous to the enemy. And he explains why. It's because we are obeying whether we feel incentives or not. We are praying even though our petitions feel dry and we are seeking the good of others when it's of no advantage to ourselves. And that's true commitment. Do you want to know if you really believe in Christ? Pray for years and see nothing happen. And ask, do you still believe God keeps his promises? Do good towards your enemies. Start loving people who hate you. And when nothing seems to change in your life, can you ask yourself the question, is God keeping his promises? And again, the reality is that God is not trying to force you into uncomfortable situations just to prove if you're a believer. He's trying to reveal to you that the faith he's already given you is so valuable that no amount of suffering will take you away from God. He's proving the value of the faith he's already given for you. And he's asking, do you want to see it? Because as you live righteously for his sake, suffering will come, either from a world that hates Christ from the natural brokenness and uncomfortability and difficulties and hardness that God has uniquely ordained for each one of us. The reality is there's nothing that can be taken away from us that's better than what we've already been given, which Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how will he also not graciously give us all things? If God allowed his son to suffer and has given us everything in Christ, then doesn't that make suffering worth it? Doesn't that make it feel small in comparison to everything he's already given us? Let me wrap things up by giving you one more quote from C.H. Spurgeon. It's an amazing quote from a man who didn't talk about suffering as someone who was removed from it. Spurgeon suffered a lot in his life, maybe more than most. He was a man who saw many people die, young people and old people. He was someone who had many health issues. He had a disease called gout, which was very, very painful. He saw many, many tragedies in his life, and yet it only compounded towards a stronger and stronger faith. And so as someone who understood suffering, this is what Spurgeon said about suffering. He said, if the Christian did not sometimes suffer heaviness, then he would begin to grow too proud and to think too much of himself, and become too great in his own esteem. Those of us who in our health are full of everything that can make life happy, we too often forget the Most High God. Lest we should be satisfied with ourselves, and we should forget that all our own springs must be in him, the Lord sometimes saps the springs of life, and he drains the heart of all its spirits, 
And he leaves us without soul or strength from earth so that we would be without joy or gladness. But then it is that we discover what we are made of. And out of the depths we cry unto God and we are humbled by our adversities. One of the most important parts of holiness is humbleness. The reality is that when we suffer and are angry, it's because we think we don't deserve it. And the reality is that every single aspect of our lives should be suffering if God were fair. That's what hell is. It's a just suffering for the sin we've committed against the Most High God. And yet in comparison to that, even now we receive so much good and so little suffering. And even the suffering, Peter is saying, that we do have It's nothing in comparison to the eternity that Christ has brought to us. Therefore, how should we live? With a desire to be humble. To live a life in which God is God and we are not. And that even though we are sinners, we would accept that suffering does not deny the fact that we are God's children. That Christ was sent into this world and willingly lived a perfect life. That we would be righteous before a holy God. And that he died and suffered himself on the cross so that we wouldn't suffer in hell for eternity. And that that would be freely given to us by what? By faith. Christ would supernaturally regenerate us by the power of his Holy Spirit that we might believe in him and be able to undergo any suffering. And even temporary, small suffering, though it's painful, though it's difficult, but in light of eternity is worth it. I hope that whenever it is that you suffer, maybe it's not today or tomorrow or the next day or next year, but whenever it is that suffering comes, I hope that as a result of this, you'd be able to say at least three things about suffering. Number one, you might say, this is for my good. You could say that this was good so that I would be humbled and so that my faith would exclusively rest on Christ. And all my hope would only be on him. This is good. Secondly, I hope that you would say, this is for my joy. Christ did not do this to make me unhappy or uncomfortable, but that my joy would rest only in him. And that my joy would be so tied to him that I wouldn't look for joy in things that will pass away or in sins that won't satisfy, but that I would find satisfaction in him. This is for my joy. And thirdly, that you would say, this is for my growth. That when I suffer well, God is proving his power in me. And he is proving that his concern is to make me more like his son, whom he loves and cares for and is glorifying as we speak and who will reign forever. And that we are being grown into people who love him, trust him, and are more committed to his mission even as we suffer. The most important thing in this whole life is to live like Christ and to live for Christ. And even brokenness and suffering have a place in God's plan to help us change. So let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good and it is not enough to say it once. These are truths that we need to remind ourselves every day, even for us who may not have suffered serious things yet. Some of us have. We've experienced tragedies that um, we can't deal with or that are too difficult to understand. Some of us 
are waiting for those moments and don't know what it's going to be like when we reach them. But Father, you have a plan for it. You are not doing these things for our harm, but for our help, for our growth, for our holiness, and for our humbleness. Father, move your spirit in us that we might believe that. Even as we go into small groups, Father, let us be so preoccupied with how we truly think of suffering. There's so many questions to ask behind this topic, so many theological questions to ask that are so good and have answers in Scripture. But, Father, let us primarily ask this question. Do I believe God loves me even though I might suffer? Because, Father, you have confirmed in your word that, yes, your suffering is part of the evidence that you are treating us as sons. Father, implant that truth deep in our hearts that we may live more committed for your kingdom and that our faith might be more purified, that it would rest on only you, the only place where true hope and satisfaction can be found. So we pray this in your name. Amen.